Okay, flip over to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3. We are preaching through the, the prophet of Habakkuk, and uh, we have come to chapter 3, and just by way of quick review, in chapter 1, Habakkuk asks God, why does he allow evil to persist in Judah? And, and God responds, well, I'm preparing something that you wouldn't believe even if you heard it which is the raising up the, of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they are going to come in and um, eventually destroy Jerusalem and haul Judah off into exile. And all of this is a little bit much for Habakkuk, so he asks, well, how can you let these wicked Babylonians who are perhaps worse than your people continue to thrive? And so God responds to him once again. So there's this conversation between Habakkuk in between God and this book. And it's really a quest by Habakkuk to understand God, which is something we'll never do fully. But he's trying to understand in a hard world, why is God doing what he does? So we come now to Habakkuk chapter 3. And before we read the word, let's uh, pray. Our Father, we bless you for your abundant mercy in calling out a people to yourself for your glory. Thank you that on this day, the Lord's day, uh, your day, that we have the joyous privilege of gathering as the assembly of the saints and to bend the knee in reverent worship of our one and only God and King. As we turn now to the word of our King, may I be used as a herald carrying your message, and may we, your people, be enlivened by your word and spirit, that we might know you better and thus bring our worship with ever greater awe and affection. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. I'll stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read aloud. If you would join me silently. Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. We've been reading through Hebrews at dinner time. This couple of verses struck me the other night. From chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I wonder if that's how we approach the living God when we worship. Uh, are we coming into his presence with reverence and awe? Do, do both the content and, and the posture of our hearts reflect that our God is a consuming fire? I don't know if you've been close to a consuming fire but back where we're from, West Cliff and Wetmore. There are many consuming fires. Kevin knows this. He's been on the fire department. Um, and, and 
it's kind of exciting when there's a fire and to try to go out at night and to witness the fire at night. And you'll see it kind of smoldering along and then this big tree will just flame up. It's really impressive and it's really beautiful. And it almost fills your heart with a sense of awe at the majesty of this, this really portion of God's creation. That is until someone's property is in the way or someone's animals are in the way or, or God forbid a, a person is in the way of the fire. That then it's horrifying. We, we don't usually approach fire on that scale casually. We don't come with negligence, but we come with great care and great respect. So how do we approach God? God who, I think of the sun and these solar flares, these explosions of fire, they can be as tall as 35 times the diameter of earth these explosions of fire. Our God created that with ease. How do we approach God? The writer to the Hebrews says, let us offer an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So that's what we have here, I believe, in, in Habakkuk chapter 3. It's an act of worship, and it's an example to us as to how we should approach the God of heaven. It's an act of worship because it contains word and prayer and song. And this is all from the lips of a man who is doing his best to understand God, but he's not quite there yet. He's worshiping in faith. So we'll be spending the next three or four weeks examining this closing hymn of Habakkuk, learning from God through his prophet how we, his feeble creatures, can approach him, who is a consuming fire. So this week, as I said, we'll be in verses 1 and 2, and we'll try to draw out four exhortations. Worship with awe and reverence, number one. Worship with awe and reverence, number two. Fear the work of the Lord. Fear the work of the Lord. Number three, spread knowledge of the work of the Lord. Spread the knowledge of the work of the Lord. And number four, plead the faithfulness, the fullness of God's promises. Plead the fullness of God's promises. So first, worship with awe and reverence. Uh, the, the more sentimental in the world might object to what I've just said, my opening statements, that there may be for some a vague concept of hell or something for those who reject God, but in general, the sentiment seems to go like, well, God is not a consuming fire to me, not, not my papa, not my daddy, but that's kind of the attitude. He, he set his sweet love upon us, and he loves the world so much. Or perhaps we could make a more helpful and, and theological counterpoint to my opening con comments, and, and that might be, well, as redeemed Christians, we are in Christ, so we need not tiptoe around God as though he were this giant sleeping ogre. In fact, Hebrews does say, let us approach his throne of grace with confidence. But what I want to argue for this morning is that while we should, as Christians, affirm absolutely the fatherly disposition of God toward his adopted children in Christ, we should also affirm 
the, the confidence that we have in Christ before the throne of grace, we need also to, even or perhaps especially as redeemed Christians, approach God with a sense of holy fear, awe, and reverence as the consuming fire and judge of all the universe when we come before him to worship him. When the writer to the Hebrews writes, he writes to Christians, he, he didn't say, well, now to the unbelieving only, hear this, our God is a consuming fire. He's talking to Christians. He says, our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, worship him in reverence and awe. And what do we make of that fatherly disposition of God toward his adopted sons and daughters? It's always kind of struck me the way Peter talks about this relationship, and maybe you remember this from when we went through First Peter. But he says in chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And, and listen to this. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Not, not terror, not doubt of our standing with our father, not anxiety that you might awake the slumbering ogre, but there's a sense in which our awe and our fear and our reverence and our desire for holiness should increase because of our relationship to the Father, because He's redeemed us, because of our adoption. We, we who know the Lord best, know His attributes best, know His righteous deeds best, we should be the first to bend the knee in reverent awe. It's no coincidence then that the two words that the Bible uses most for the word worship uh, Shakah in Hebrew and proskuneo in Greek, they, they both carry this idea of bowing or, or prostrating oneself as before a king. What is it that most naturally comes to mind for most Western Christians when we say the word worship? I think for most, most it's probably some, some concept of a praise and worship band, perhaps a posture of glory. You know, upright hands raised, eyes closed, like, like we're feeling the warm rays of the sun. And now don't get me wrong, I can become a bit cynical on this subject. Um, and it's all too easy to swing the pendulum too far. The Bible speaks of raising our hands in worship. And, and if that's something that you like to do, by all means do it. We could use a bit more of that in our Presbyterianness. Um, and there is a place also in worship for exalting and dancing and joyful noise, all of those things. But what is our heart posture before God? And my point is that the most common posture Scripture describes when speaking of worship is that our face is on the carpet, prostrate before the Lord of heaven. I think this is the posture of reverent awe that we find in Habakkuk 3. It's a chapter, um, really, of corporate worship to the Lord. It, it opens, A prayer of Habakkuk, according to Shigenoth, and it closes to the choir master with stringed instruments. So this is something that's been given for the corporate worship of God, to the, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is something that's supposed to be sung. 
It's a, a poetic hymn of prayer composed by Habakkuk, not, not just for his own edification, but that all the saints might worship him and use it. And really, it's something that's been passed down among the Jews and even among the covenant community now. So now just listen to the content of his prayer. So just some, some examples, some samplings. We'll get into these in the coming weeks. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, speaking of God, His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed His heels. Or verse 10, The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Something tells me that these lines won't make the cut in the next upcoming praise and worship conference. But these words were penned for the corporate worship of God's people. Do we sing songs like this? Do we praise God like this? Why would we hesitate to sing lines like these in our worship? And maybe we're nervous about perhaps the idea of, of offending somebody. Somebody comes in and we offend them. But it's fascinating for those of us who were in that summer study last year, Rosaria Butterfield's book. Uh, she has a very interesting comments about that whole notion. Um, her story is striking. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse, a rabid liberal, a, a feminist to the core, a practicing lesbian, a gay right a- activist, and, and God saved her. Part of her conversion story includes going to this pastor's house for an evening Bible study worship time. And, and at this, the pastor of this church, this particular denomination, sang exclusively psalms. And she recounts going and singing psalms and, and seeing these pimpled young men sing some of the most vile things she had ever heard sung as worship to God. And she's not a believer at this point. But what stuck out to her was that these people seemed to be at peace with this God who they were singing about. So it's interesting, these repulsive contents of the songs were part of what attracted her to Christianity. And if you read the Psalms, you just read through them, they don't seem like worship songs. That strikes us as very strange. But they're filled with this kind of thing. And what what else should we expect? Paul says that Christ is the stench of death to those who don't believe. But by the calling, regenerating power of the Spirit, we who have faith, what was once repulsive has now become sweet. So this hymn is a hymn of Habakkuk, is a hymn of overwhelming awe and reverence at God. First blush, it may be a bit off-putting, but for those with faith, it is filled with sweetness because it brings to the fore of the minds of the saints the very character of God borne out by his awesome deeds.
which is kind of where we turn next. We need to fear the work of the Lord. That's our second exhortation. Fear the work of the Lord. Um, vagueness has never sat well with me. And vagueness can impact our worship in a weird way. Christians can throw around big words with kind of a casual ease. And I always kind of assumed people knew what they were talking about, and I just didn't. I was slow or somehow unspiritual or unpious. But I've come to realize a lot of the, a lot of the time we don't know what we're saying. And our songs and our messages and our conversations and our prayers are replete with words like faith, hope, grace, mercy, peace, love. Have you ever tried to define love? Just sat there and tried to define it. It's really hard. These words, redemption, salvation, providence, sovereignty, faithfulness. We can use them flippantly, not knowing what they mean. If a man says to his wife, if he calls her sweet darling honey cakes, but, but can't can enumerate some things that make her sweet to him, or his darling, that's little more than just a hollow nickname. So we should be very careful about attributing nice-sounding words to God, but we should, and we should be careful about worshiping based on vague platitudes. Our worship should be based on knowledge revealed to us in the works and words of God Himself. And this is the place where Habakkuk has come to in his prayer hymn. He's kind of spent this entire book perplexed about the works of the Lord, crying out for answers, and in the end he finds himself in that posture of submission. The answers of the Lord and the deeds of the Lord have brought him to his knees. And what he's now come to see and know based on the works and words of the Lord informs his worship. He's not just saying things because it sounds nice. Note his progression in the book, how he, at the beginning in chapter 1, How long, O Lord... Why do you idly look at wrong? Quite an accusation to say to God himself. And the Lord answered, I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. God has a plan. And he cried out when he heard the plan in in chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The Lord's response is great. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. So by by chapter 3, Habakkuk really still doesn't have a fullness of understanding of God's plan, which in truth no one can have. But he still, in, in words of confessional worship, says, <clears throat> O Lord, I have heard what you have to say, and, and your deeds place a holy fear in my soul. Basically he's saying, O covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you notice it, it's capital L-O-R-D, O Yahweh, covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, O you who lead your people out of slavery to the promised land, O Yahweh, you have, I have heard of your works and your words, and I tremble in awe. I revere you. So do you see where the roots of this song of praise are, are coming from? 
It's not in vague, pleasant platitudes about uh, a deified, beneficent buddy pal. It's rooted in truth, the, the very works and words of God. <clears throat> his response corresponds directly with what he's seen and heard. And in this instance, his response is fear, which is appropriate given the message that the Lord has given him. And, and that word fear can have a range of meanings in the Bible. Um, you know, terror on the one end to, to that sort of holy reverence and awe on the other. And I think here perhaps I would like to take the whole enchilada. He, he's, has a holy reverence and awe, but I also think that he's genuinely afraid. Terror has kind of leached into his marrow because the deeds that God has promised are indeed terrifying. He, he says, and this is sort of unusual, I would, wouldn't think he would say this, I think he'd say, I fear you, but he says, I fear your works. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he expresses his fear more fully. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. He's afraid. He's afraid of what's going to happen when the Babylonians get there. And I think oftentimes we wrongly equate fear, or, or rather faith, with optimism. Faith is some sort of a, a hoping for the best that God will never allow any harm to come our way. But I think it's more accurate to say that faith is an assurance in God's faithfulness despite what might be on our horizon. So worship and fear are not mutually exclusive. Nor are worship and other emotions that we might normally not associate with worship. In the Psalms and the Prophets, worship and sadness frequently go hand in hand in, in, in the form of lament. Or worship and confusion, worship and questioning, worship and even righteous anger go hand in hand. So I think let's, let's not think when we come into the sanctuary on Sunday, uh, I'm not in the right frame of mind to worship God this morning. I'm too beat down, I'm too tired, I'm too confused by what God seems to be doing in my life. Because true worship is a posture of reverent submission by faith in the living God, and it's not contingent on how we feel. Worship is about God. So if you find yourself in a state of of perplexity, anxiety, fear, exhaustion, anger, it, it might not be the day you bring your tambourine to church. But that's also the time you most need to be with the brethren and, and to have your face in the proverbial carpet. It's interesting, nobody knows really what a Shigianoth is in verse 1. Generally, it's agreed that it's some kind of a musical directive, but it's been speculated, and it makes sense to me, that it's used only in cases of complete reliance on God's faithfulness. And this makes sense because the only other place in the Bible that it's used is in Psalm 7. Psalm 7 opens a Shagion, which is just another form of the same word, basically a Shagionath of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. The first verse is, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. It's a psalm of reliance upon the Lord, just like 
Habakkuk chapter 3 is a psalm of reliance upon the Lord. So worship at its best proceeds from a heart that loves God, not for what we want God to be, but or, or, or the good things that God gives us, but a love for God, a heart that delights in who God is, whatever the prevailing emotion of the day. Now, if we truly do delight in who God is, then we will long to see his work, and we will long for the knowledge of God's work and God's deeds to abound in the world, which is our third exhortation. Spread the knowledge of the work of the Lord. Spread the knowledge of the work of the Lord. Um, In his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, D.A. Carson kind of takes... The society and points out that the emperor has no clothes. He points out that the commendable characteristic of tolerance has evolved and thus devolved in our society. Tolerance has shifted from putting up with opinions that you believe to be wrong to, to placing every opinion on an even plane of correctness, that every opinion is equally correct. That's what tolerance has come to mean. This new form of tolerance has devolved into totalitarianism because anyone who would dare question the viability of another person's opinion is in the wrong, by definition. You must agree that it is wrong to tell anyone they are wrong. The only heresy is saying there's such a thing as heresy. Therefore, in our context, you may have your personal religion, but that's it. It's just a personal religion. Keep the sanctuary, keep keep your worship in the sanctuary and in the closet. And the ironic dogma in the religion which goes by the name secularism is religious dogma is forbidden in the public square. Which may work well if you're a Buddhist and your only sanctuary is a yoga mat. But it doesn't jive with a religion that has as a core tenet every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christianity isn't tolerated in this new paradigm of tolerance because fundamental to our message is Jesus Christ is king of the universe, whether you like it or not. If you don't confess him as Lord, you will be going to hell. Christian worship is, by its very nature, includes the spread of the renown of the name of the Lord. Psalm 117 The whole thing. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Opening line is fundamental to Christianity. Praise the Lord, all nations. Habakkuk pleads with the Lord that his works be shown and that they be known. Verse verse 2 In the midst of the years, revive it. That is his work. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. That phrase, in the midst of the years, has been explained variously. In my opinion, the best is that it's between the time of the judgment executed on Judah and and the the time of the uh, judgment executed on Babylon. In, In that period, make your work known, O 
O Lord. Make it, revive it. It's interesting because Ezekiel, in many ways, was the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. In the midst of the years, revive your works. In the midst, make it known. Because the prophet Ezekiel lived in that very time period between the execution of the judgment on Judah and the execution of the judgment on Babylon. And what is the refrain of the book of Ezekiel? Then they will know that I am the Lord. Over and over again. Then they will know that I am the Lord. From the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment on the nations, all the way through to the restoration of the remnant, then they will know that I am the Lord. He's making his works known. And there's a real sense in which we should be able to call upon God in that same way. In the midst of our years, revive your works and make them known. Show yourself to be the Lord in our day. As we live between the coming of Christ, we, we should long that Christ, that, that God would prove himself, that he would make himself known. Which kind of brings us back around to, to a life lived in a sort of totalitarian, totalitarian secular state. I think, really, the, the danger for our church is not quite the same as it may be for a majority of churches. I think here we're, we're less in danger of flippancy in worship. But we ha- we ha- what we have to be careful of is turning inward. I've used this language with the elders in the past that it, sometimes we're a bit like a band of, of reformed refugees from the holocaust of truth in our day. And as Robert Godfrey has pointed out, as cultural Christianity declines and as the evangelical church at large seems to be drifting, we are going to need solid biblical churches. Confessionally reformed churches need to stand as a bulwark of Christian truth. So Habakkuk's prayer should be our prayer. O Lord, revive your works and make them known. But our prayer should also impact our activity because it is the church that God has charged and entrusted with the task of making himself known in the earth. It is our task to carry the gospel to the nations. We, the church, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, are the pillar and buttress of the truth. We've been given that responsibility of making disciples teaching them only that which they need to know to be saved, but not controversial doctrines, so as to preserve the unity of the church. That's not what he says. He says, <laughs> teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. The whole counsel of God, so that our hands are not stained with the blood of any. Our worship is to be to the spread of the renown of the name of the Lord, and that his works and his words would be known to the glory of his name. Now the wonderful result of knowing God is that we know his promises. And the last thing we see that Habakkuk does in these verses is to plead the promises of God. So that's the fourth exhortation. Plead the fullness of the promises of God. Habakkuk opened this book with a call for divine chastisement. Judah had become evil and needed correction, and Habakkuk couldn't have imagined the degree of chastisement God had in store, and that overwhelmed him. God would rain down judgment by the harsh hand of the Chaldeans. 
but after some significant back and forth, as we've seen, he has come once again to this place of submission, of acceptance. All that God does is good and right. Now, I would be inclined to plead with God that he relent entirely, that he change his course like he did with Nineveh. But but Habakkuk seems to accept the just judgment of God and that that judgment will descend upon Judah. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. He's convinced. He's convinced not because he's a pessimist, but because he's heard the report of the Lord, wrath will come. So, in wrath, please remember mercy. Why can he plead the mercy of the Lord? He couldn't plead the mercy of the Lord if he didn't know the Lord and know his character and his deeds. He he pleads for mercy because he knows the Lord and he knows his promises. He knows that God will preserve his people. As he said in chapter 1, verse 12, we shall not die. Yahweh will not go back on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David. So he says, rightly, he pleads the promises of the Lord. Please, in wrath, do not forget mercy. And here we see the value of pleading the promises of God. God will always fulfill what he promises. And, and so that, that's why our prayers are most effective when we pray according to God's will. We cannot pray according to God's will if we do not know his will. I think it's pretty generally true for most of us. We dig into God's word most and we pray most in trials. I wonder how much better it would be for us in trials if we were to equip ourselves beforehand to fill our quivers with the promises of God beforehand. So I urge you that whether you're in a point of trial or in a point of ease, that you seek the Lord by his word and know his word and know his promises so that you can better join with what the prophet Jeremiah says in Lamentations in in the worst possible imaginary situation. Not imaginary, imaginable. It's very real. In chapter 3, 19 through 23, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The chief exhortation of of this message is, if we want to approach God rightly in our worship, we must know God. To worship God, to approach God rightly, you must know God. We must know him as the God who is a consuming fire and as the God of mercy. Then we can worship the Lord in awe and reverence. And it really, it's a foretaste of the heavenly song. So I just want to close with Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
Notice the posture in heaven. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. Amen.